Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, as uh, Peter and Spencer both said already today, uh, welcome again to our church, especially if you're visiting for the first time, which we've had a lot of that going on this summer. Historically, uh, I think Spencer said earlier, we're turning nine in September, but historically, for us, for some reason, summer's been just a common time for us to have a lot of visitors. And I, maybe that's common for churches. It just for some reason, it wasn't for me in my previous church experience, but from but that preceded this one. So to have that in our history has just been kind of uh, cool, I guess. Odd, but great. Good thing, right? But um, if that's uh, you and you've been visiting um, us for the first time these past couple of months, welcome. Glad you guys are here. And if today's your first time, glad you're joining us as well. But again, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And like uh, Peter said before that last song, we're in the middle of a uh, big questions series, and uh, he uh, chose a song that lined up well with one of the questions that uh, we're going to look at today. It's a big question, a very broad one, and it's a question that's been asked of us, so if you weren't aware of this, uh, we're preaching questions that aren't just questions, but they're questions that the church has asked us as overseers and elders and pastors of the church, so we're preaching things that uh, Hiawatha has brought uh, to us via email or text or just kind of personal conversation. So it's filled out our summer quite nicely. It's a chance for us to know that we're we always hope this is the case, but it's especially when we're preaching a sermon series like this that we know we're at least preaching someone's question. Someone's wondering about this. If it's just one person, that's great. Hopefully that's not the case, um, but if it's just one, that's, hey, that's, that's awesome. So, uh, and if it's you, um, let us know who we can fill this out to, because there's certainly questions that can't really be answered <laughs> at the same time. Uh, they can and they can't in, in, uh, in just one sermon, but today we're going to look at uh, the question we were asked uh, via email earlier in the summer. And the question is this, can we uh, please hear a sermon covering the, the topic, the biblical topic, the theological topic of predestination? And so just to unpack that and fill that out, because that's a very broad question that we uh, just don't have the time to unpack in, uh, again, uh, in one sermon, we could have a series on this that might last 10 weeks, and we could look at different nuances of the question, but just to kind of unpack it and reframe this in ways that we'll look, look at it today, because you might be thinking, well, that word, I can understand that definitionally, but as it pertains to theology, I don't know how that comes up in the Bible. I've never read that in the Bible before, and that's great if you're there. Or you might be pretty seasoned with this and coming into this service today even with some pretty uh, substantial thoughts on the matter. And so, and, and probably as a lot of you are right in the middle of that as well. So just uh, uh, flush this out a bit and reframe it. The question here is, uh, at least we hope this is the spirit of what we were asked, because again, it was broad. But uh, the spirit of the question, uh, we think, is, what is it exactly? What is predestination theologically? To what degree does God predestine people to be saved? To what degree does he control our salvation experience in his son? To what degree does he initiate and soften our hearts to believe in him? And historically, Christians have fallen into different camps uh, on this matter as it pertains to predestination, emphasizing either a Christian's free will or God's sovereign control of our choice of him uh, whenever that might occur in, in our life. So the predestining choice of lost sinners or some mix of the two somewhere in the middle. And like a lot of things in theology, we've seen this a lot this summer with different topics as well, there are unhealthy extremes with different topics, and this is no exception. Unhealthy extremes when it comes to the theological topic of predestination that we need to seek to avoid. And so just to kind of lay down our cards initially, just with a couple of initial remarks on this, and we'll flush this out as we go, but... When we talk about this at Hiawatha, whether it's in our membership class or from the pulpit or just kind of over coffee with people, we, at the end of the day, teach a paradox or a tension that we feel is consistent with the Bible on the matter, and that is that we have real choices as real created creatures with a will to choose God or respond 
to his love, however you want to frame that, but underneath God's choice of us. So we have real choice, but it's underneath God's choice of us. So in other words, like the Bible says in 1 John 4 in the New Testament, and actually that song said earlier uh, as well that Peter and the band just did, we love because he first loved us. Like the Bible says that we love as Christians because he first loved us. We reframe that and rephrase that in kind of predestinarian language to say we choose God because he first chose us. So we have real choice of him, but only because he first pursues and chooses us. So as it pertains to love, the Bible's clear. We only love because he's first loved us in his son. And we think it's the same with a choice as well. We have real choice, but only because he first, in a preeminent manner, uh, chooses us. So we'll come back to that here in a moment. But at, at, the, at first glance, understand that there is tension. There's a paradox in that, that at the end of the day, we think we have to rest in because there's a mystery to it. A couple initial disclaimers here, and I uh, boil this down into two things. Open-handedness and open-mindedness. Open-handedness and open-mindedness. So on, on the, the former side of things, open-handedness, this is an open-handed issue at our church as it pertains to membership, meaning that you don't have to believe with our perspective uh, to be a member of our church, to be very involved, committed, a part of our family here. There is a gray area. It's possible to be a Christian, a true believer in Christ, saved, in love with Jesus, in love with the church, in love with lost people, on mission, and not agree with everything we're saying here this morning. So in that sense, it's open-handed. Closed-handed things in general for us, when we talk about closed-handed matters and issues, uh, that revolves more around the idea of what you have to believe to be a Christian. And so this is a big matter. We're passionate about it here at the church. Our elders, our leaders, all agree on this issue. So what I'm going to say today, uh, that's our official perspective. This is all, the only perspective that we preach at the church, the only perspective that we'll teach uh, but at the same time, it's open-handed uh, in terms of uh, membership, at least as it pertains to Bainusha. Christians have to believe that, that God saves us and we don't save ourselves. You have to believe that or, or you're not a Christian. That, that's kind of basic Christian theology 101. But in terms of Bainusha, how that plays out, to what degree God saves, to what degree uh, we have a role in salvation, that's a, a little more uh, gray as it pertains to membership here. If that's uh, confusing, by the way, to just talk to us afterwards, we can flush that out a little, a little bit more. With open-mindedness, however, and, and with all of that said, with number one, with number two here, with all that said, uh, we always hope to persuade people here at the same time. So even though it's open-handed, this is not going to be just a, let's define terms time. Let's just talk about this objectively. We really think God wants us to know that he predestines us. He preaches this. When the Bible talks about it, it's not just, here's some defined terms, some kind of heavy theological tensions and paradoxes that happen to kind of weave into some of the letters to us and prophecies and oracles and psalms and all of that. He wants to encourage. He wants to build up the church. He wants to mature. He wants to give us joy and security in our salvation. And so with all of that said, the prior stuff, we want to encourage open-mindedness wherever you come from, from this perspective. It might be this is your first time you're hearing this. You might bring a lot to, this, uh, to the table on this matter, too, that, that's consistent or not consistent with where we're coming from. We want to encourage you, though, to come at this from an open-minded perspective and to learn something and, and to just presuppose that God has something for you in these, in these next few minutes we have together uh, to tweak your perspective, to mature it, maybe to change it entirely uh, because he wants you to have a better perspective on who he is over your salvation process and experience than you brought in uh, to, to the room. So, 
With that said, uh, the plan here today, basically three things. Uh, we're going to look at biblical support for the idea that God does, in fact, predestine us to be saved. Secondly, unnecessary therefores. There's a lot of uh, unnecessary philosophical musings that we can take. Uh, it's not bad to do that. They're just unhelpful a lot of times. So we'll talk about a couple of those. There's so many. We'll try to do uh, two or three. We'll see how much time we have. And then uh, the third thing is, and this is the most important thing you can ask in this matter, that I'm guessing, and I say this because I rarely do this, as someone who knows a lot about this by God's grace, I've, I've read a lot about it, studied a lot about it, talked to a lot of people about it, but I rarely, unless I force myself to do this, and I'm really reading the Bible on the matter, I rarely ask the question, why does God predestine? And that's the most important question you can ask about this matter. It's not just what is it definitionally. Oh, the, the word appears in the scriptures. That's great. The concept is there explicitly and implicitly. But why? Why does God want you to know that he has predestined you unto salvation? Why is it so important? It comes up a ton in the scriptures. But have you ever asked the why? Even if I, if I, if I ask you that right now or as I say this, what comes to mind? Do you know the answer to that? And maybe partially, maybe substantially, maybe you've never thought about it before, but that's the most important question I want to make sure you understand before, and all of us are reminded of before we, we leave here today. So, so why does he predestine? But before we get to all that, let's kind of lay the foundation here with a, of just a few places in the Bible where this comes up, and we'll look at it in two ways under this first angle, so biblical support, the, the explicit and the implicit. Bible does this a lot. There, there's clear statements on uh, some matter, and there's implicit showings of that as well. And this is true for the idea of predestination as well. So a few places in the New Testament that this uh, word or idea comes up explicitly to begin. Uh, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us, the church, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So notice a couple of things here. I'll just a couple of quick comments, and I'll come back to this passage in a little bit because this is a really important one. But note the aspect here of God predestining and calling us and saving us before the ages began. So I'm using the word and the idea of choosing. God choosing us is synonymous with predestination today, and I think that's okay to do. It's the, the Bible's intending that. God's intending that. But what, what's beneficial about the term predestination is it implies a little more timelessness to it than just, than just the idea that God in time is choosing us to salvation. Rather, before time began, before the ages, outside of time, before anything was created, God had people in mind to save ultimately through through his son. And it's linked then, relatedly, with a personal nature. Paul the Apostle, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, is writing this to Timothy, saying, hey, you and I, we're two individual, personal people that he had in mind before the ages began. He knew we were going to fall away from him and rebel, but he knew that he was going to enact a plan of salvation in the world through his son, 
to save us, you and I. So it's not just broad, that God has some foreknowledge of a broad idea of some faceless, nameless group of people that would be saved, but specific people. Me, Paul is saying, and you, Timothy. It gets really pastoral and intimate quickly. And so note that as well. And thirdly here too, the linking of grace with the matter. So not because, that last uh, third line there, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace we are saved and called, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the idea of the fact that, and actually Paul, the guy who wrote this again in a different one of his letters, I don't have this on screen, but he says that uh, the idea of grace is linked so much with it in that if God did choose and predestined before time began, then it must be by grace we're saved because he chose us before we could even do any good and evil. We weren't even around yet. So, so we had no time to like do enough good or n- not as much evil. It's not based on human will or exertion, but it must be based on grace. You see that connection there. The predestination and choosing linked with the fact that God saves by grace. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But understand that definitionally here and, and note these types of things when you're reading how these doctrines relate back to the gospel. Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, but only that many. Romans 9, 15, this is the last one. We could look at a lot more. Uh, but it says, For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, this is what he extrapolates from this theologically, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but only salvation, but only on God who has mercy. All right, so that's an example of a few explicit teachings on the matter uh, from the New Testament. Uh, The other angle I want to bring to this is the implicit side, which is the greater biblical thematic patterns that support it. So the Bible states it, remember, but it also shows it uh, cross-testamentally. So as the Bible progresses as a story, it shows contrasts that help tell a story. Things aren't the same as they used to be in the beginning. They aren't the same as they used to be when God was covenanting Israel in the Old Testament. So the question then is, how does the contrast between the Old and New Testament help teach this doctrine? In the Old Testament, God covenanted relationally with people conditionally and gave them laws to keep to help restrain sin, but also to mediate their relationship with him. So the Old Testament was basically built on people choosing God. It's one way to understand the Old Testament. It was a covenant relationship that God established with people saying, choose me and you will be blessed, choose not me and you will be cursed. It was built on people's choice of God and his ways. Deuteronomy 30, I'll read a few examples of this. In Deuteronomy 30, 19, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. In Joshua 24 as well, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, uh, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And also in the early parts of the New Testament, which are still Old Testament literature, remember before Christ dies on the cross and is raised, 
that's still Old Testament time because the New Testament or New, new Covenant way God is saving people, relating to people, does not begin until Jesus dies on the cross and is raised. And so you see this interesting time when Christ is on trial and people are given a choice between God and Barabbas, who is this convicted robber. And Pilate, the Roman governor, is giving them this choice because he's trying to let Jesus go. Realizing, knowing he's innocent and saying, well, surely if I give them this choice and bring Barabbas out here, parade him before the people, they will choose Barabbas to go back to pr- choose Christ to be set free and Barabbas back to, uh, back to prison or to be crucified himself. But here's what happens. In Matthew 27, 17 to 23, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to the people, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So if you don't know much about the Old Testament, and that's fine, but if you don't know much about it, it is essentially a story of pervasive human failure. In the context of God saying, choose me and choose my ways, people constantly fall on their face. In other words, a covenant where God says, I want you to choose me, fails miserably over and over and over and over again. It's Old Testament theology 101. People fail. When we're left to our own devices, we simply do not choose God. No one does. We flee, we're indifferent, we're oblivious. We are his enemies, the Bible says. Contrast this with the New Testament, a new covenant built on better promises, better stipulations. We see things like this. Matthew eleven twenty seven. it says, Jesus speaking, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father, God, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 6, Jesus answered them, the disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? seeking to encourage. John 15, again, to the same crowd, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Also noteworthy, we we said this back in our Easter sermon, you guys were here for that, but in every single biblical instance of Jesus appearing to people after his resurrection, he is the one who appears to people. He is the one who even miraculously sometimes through locked doors to people who aren't even looking for him just appears and says, here I am, I'm alive. Look at my, 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 the hands and my, the holes in my hands and my side. It's, it's actually me. I'm alive. I've died for your sins. I've overwhelmed death for you. I'm about to be raised up to be seated at the right hand of God. Not once do you see in these types of instances an example of someone finding Jesus. You, you never see it narratively, not even one time in the gospel account, someone thinking about the idea, going out, looking for the risen Christ, and finding him like out in the garden or the marketplace or the room with the disciples. Jesus always chooses on his timing, in his way, to appear to people when he wants. So this is meant to demonstrate this idea of the idea that he's enacting a new and better way of God choosing people, of Jesus choosing people, of Jesus finding people, of God pursuing, rather than saying, here's some things to do and don't do, I'll stand back to see if you make it. Old covenant, contrasted with a markedly different way. 
of God relating with people, a choosing, predestining, finding, pursuing, gracious uh, kind of way that we see robustly taught in the New Testament. So, again, this is part of how the Bible progresses. As you read the Bible, note these things. It's essentially, I, I call it before, like a, a really thick rope like you'd see on a boat or something with tons of strands woven together that make up this larger rope. One of the strands thematically that makes up the biblical storyline is this idea that we're talking about today. But understand that it's not talked about in the same manner across the biblical storyline. In the Old Testament, it's talked about differently. In the context of failure is a covenant of, God, of people choosing God. In the New Testament, the context of success and permanence and grace, it's the idea of God choosing, God choosing people. All this is meant to tell a story a story of how God is patient, a story of how human beings, though wicked and constant in our rebellion against God, God remains strangely committed to us. And ultimately in the world comes to establish a new testament, a new covenant that communion embodies and symbolizes that we take every week when we gather so that we remember that God covenants with us based on Jesus' blood, not based on our moral uprightness or even our choice to respond to him. So the New Testament then is uh, just a, a kind of a graph here. I won't go through all of these, but the New Testament here, the second to the bottom line, is, as the book of Hebrews says, the better testament because it's built on better promises. Uh, the promises in the beginning were based on people, failure. The promises in the latter part of history based on Jesus. That, that verse that uh, Spencer read to lead us into a time of worship today from Jeremiah 31 it's clear that, that God is saying, I'm going to establish with you a new covenant, not like the Old Testament or Old Covenant that I made with Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Different. Not even really an extension from it, but markedly different, where I will enter into people. I will give them my spirit. I will wash away their sins. I will give them my laws inside their heart. It won't be an outside probing thing, try harder. It will be, I will raise you from the dead type covenant and make you a new creation. I will enter into the world myself and become like you and die in your place. I will send you my servant David, my, my ultimate Moses, my ultimate mediator to himself be the way you get back to God. It will not be based on you anymore, but based on my promise to see this to its end. And what God promises, he never lies. He always gets it done, which is something that every human being can never say. Never say. We go back on our words all the time. We lie. We make false promises. We have impure motives. God never does that. And the New Testament is built on these types of things that God intends, that God owes. He swears to himself, the Bible says in Hebrews 6. I swear by myself that I will see this. I will bless you through my son. I will see your salvation unto the end. I, I will choose you and appoint you unto eternal life. I will lift you up out of the tombs. I will find you. In all that, I will, I will love you. This is the gospel, and the doctrine of predestination is at the heart of it. So now, uh, for some, and I, I would put myself in this category, uh, we're going to shift gears here just for a second, a little bit of a bunny trail, but uh, the idea of God choosing some, like I said before, can lead to certain philosophical musings, uh, some of which are really helpful to think through and fun to, to debate through and talk through and read about, but many of which are unhelpful. And so um, what I want to do is just qualify 
this, uh, I don't know if qualifies the best word actually, but um, address the unnecessary therefores that we can tend to make from this, uh, this doctrine. The first is, predestination exists, therefore we have no real choices. We are puppets. And that is, uh, that is uh, decidedly untrue, the Bi- because the Bible never says this. The Bible never says, uh, if you've never read it before, never says that you are puppets. Never shows it either. To the contrary, we are real living beings with a will to choose things that in turn have consequences, good or bad. But as we said before, our choices exist in light of his preeminent choice, new covenant choice, gracious choice of us. First Thessalonians 1 is a good example of this. It says, Paul again, writing to a different church in Thessalonica to encourage them, and he hears reports of what they're doing and what they're all about, how they're loving, how they're clinging to the gospel, is written back to encourage them and teach them. And part of what he says is this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see the connection between a person's choice, a person's opportunity to respond to the gospel, and kind of over that and behind that, to use Paul's words, God's choice of them. It's kind of like he's saying here, because you were convicted at my preaching, and you responded to the gospel of Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, you responded, put your faith in that. Because of all that, we know he chose you before time began. It's evidence that his predestining work is kind of coming to fruition. But do you see how both work? How it's not a dichotomy? We can't say, well, because he chooses ultimately alone, then we have no real choices. The Bible never says that. We say that kind of on our high philosophical uh, chairs, but the Bible never goes there. Uh, It's a tension, paradox, a mystery, but it has a both and to it. The second thing, kind of relatedly, but from the flip side, more on um, the... uh, well, kind of the other side of this is predestination exists. Therefore, God must get some kind of sick pleasure out of choosing people for hell. So again, uh, for a lot of people, you guys might be thinking this for the first time today or you've had this thought, it's kept you maybe from fully going all in on the doctrine of predestination. The idea that, well, if God chooses some, that means by definition he must not choose others, right? And the initial response to that is that that actually is right. Uh, the Bible says in a number of places that God chooses some but passes over others and, ch- and does not choose some unto eternal life. But careful with your therefores. Careful with your therefores that you make philosophically and theologically from this. That does not mean that God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. Nor does it mean that people's choices against God are not part of the equation. The Bible screams the opposite from a variety of angles in the Bible. Ezekiel 33 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And even in regards to those who are perishing, who are not choosing Christ on their way to hell, it's clear, like I said before, that God's choice cooperates with people's. It's not this strict dichotomy, but a both and. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 says, in light of all that, those who are perishing 
refused to love the truth about Jesus and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, you see it here too, right? God sends a delusion, but people initially are refusing to love the truth. Those, are, those choices are cooperating. So the Bible is simply not allowing for this huge competing dichotomy between our choice and God's. Even though there are shifting degrees of emphasis biblically, like we just talked about, like in the Old and New Testament, a shifting degree of emphasis, at the same time, it does not allow for this strict dichotomy that we can make philosophically from these types of theological statements. Another one, too, I, I didn't put on here, but um, that, that I get a lot and I've, had, I've wrestled with before is predestination exists, therefore we don't need to evangelize people because God's just going to choose anyway, right? He's predestining some, so he'll just figure it out. Again, not true. Bible never says that. It says, in fact, the opposite. Go out and evangelize tirelessly because he is choosing, because you're guaranteed to catch fish. He's appointed people all over the world to believe. So go preach, cast seeds, and people will respond who are being, as Acts 13 said, as many who are appointed to believe uh, will in those moments or over the long run as you're kind of long-term evangelizing people will be brought in. They will be saved because God's word never returns void to him but always fulfills the purposes for which it goes out. So ultimately here, guys, I just, this is, and there's more we can say here, but there are just, uh, some of you, I've probably pressed on some buttons here with some of these because you're like, yeah, I ask that all the time. I don't get it. I can't fully buy into this because of these types of things. Others of you are like, oh, yeah, thanks for saying that because now I have an issue with it, you know, or whatever. But um, <laughs> it's just be careful with your therefores. That, that's my biggest thing is be careful with your philosophical therefores because they're therefores that the Bible does not make. You're making them up here. You might read a book that makes them. Christian or not, but the Bible never does. Rest in the tension. If, if you try to, you know, sometimes our philosophy prevents us from being good at theology. If you try to philosophize your way through a mysterious theological paradox, you'll probably end up unorthodox. Either believing God does not know the future, he's chosen to limit himself so we can have real choices, preserving human freedom, it's heresy, or he is in fact the great cosmic puppeteer, and, he, and we're robots, and he's causing us, in every sense of the word, to, to act and do things, and we have no real choice. Both are wrong. Both are unbiblical. So the call here is to be a biblicist. Be a theologian more than a philosopher. Philosophy is not bad. Some of you guys like, like that. It's great. It's not bad. It's just be a theologian more than that. There's a both and here that needs to be rested. We're called to choose, to respond to his love, to his truth, but there's a greater author in play here writing our story into, the, into history, and there are very important reasons for Christians to embrace this, which is where we, uh, where we turn now. So the, the third and final thing today, we'll spend the rest of our time on here, it, like I talked about before, is the why. Why is this in the Bible? What, why does God predestine? And why does he want you and I to know this? I have four things. I'll go through some of these a little bit more quickly than others. There are probably more. But four things. First is, he has to predestine or no one would be saved. We are, we say this often uh, at the church because the Bible paints this picture so frequently in the Bible, but we are not just lost and blind as sinners. We are dead. 
Ephesians 2.1 says, we are dead in our sins, but in verse 4, but God made us alive. God did the making. God did the resurrecting. God did the, I'm choosing to look at this dead rotting corpse and say live. But there's nothing that the corpse is doing to draw attention to Christ. Nothing that they're, no good laws they're keeping, no bad laws they're avoiding. They're not smelling good. They're just there. And Christ is walking by and choosing to speak into that tomb and make alive. We need that. We need that type of dead raiser. We, want, we, we need him to want us to be alive and then to tell us to get up and, and take our grave clothes off. Romans 8.32 as, as well is, you can go back one, Carl, is built on this. And those whom he predestined, he also called justified and glorified. So it's only those who he predestines that are ultimately saved. So he, he has to predestine because we're too dead, too resistant to his will uh, to choose him. And so if he didn't, zero people would be saved. And the only reason anyone is is because God is intending, which is amazing. So again, don't think about this on just a logical level. Think about it on a theological worship level. It's amazing if this is the case because think about how many people are saved. How many of you are saved? How many people globally are saved right now? How many people are worshiping in church gatherings around the globe from every tribe, tongue, and nation right now? How many from all of history have been saved? God is intending so many to be saved. So many people that are his enemies, that are resistant to his will, that are just dead, he's saying live and predestining and choosing in that amazing manner. <clears throat> Second, relatedly, it's consistent with the gospel story he's telling in the world. God saves us completely by grace, not our works, is a predestinarian statement. We don't find him, he finds us, is a predestinarian statement. We are dead in our sins and need resurrection more than advice is a predestinarian statement. I'll show this to you one more time from 2 Timothy 1 because it's just a really good example of it. Here at the bottom, again, note the connection that Paul makes with the gospel, saved and called, not because of our righteous works or good works before him, but because of his grace being linked with which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So like Peter said up here before that last song, before I came up, we can't boast. We can't even boast about our circumstances or the fact that we figured out the theological math about the gospel and that we were more open to his prompting. We can't even boast about that because it is everything. You see, because so a, a non-predestinarian theology doesn't always have to get here, so I'm not labeling any of you this if this is where you're at necessarily. I'm just saying it's a slippery slope to getting to a point where you're reliant more on your works, even just a little bit, than the contrary, which is to say that we have not even worked for faith. We've responded, but he has first chosen us. We have loved, but he has first loved us and enabled us to walk out of that tomb in the first place so that we can just walk around, have our being, live a life of good works to his glory. None of that's possible without the resurrection. We think that we're alive. We think that we're alive, but we're dead before Christ. We have this presupposition that we are walking around kind of sick, but we are walking around like, no, you weren't, nor was I. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ and intended that before the ages began. We say often here uh, at the church, too, that because of all of this, we actually preach predestination every single week at this church. It doesn't seem like that because we rarely use that word. In fact, I probably haven't said predestination in about seven, eight 
months. I mean, it's been a while, right? Just because the Bible doesn't always use this word, but the concept's everywhere. Because every week we say, you're saved by grace, not by works. You're saved by God finding you, not by you finding him. It, that's, that is to say you're chosen. That is to say that you must have been predestined because how else would that occur? And so we actually preach it um, every single week, just not with this type of uh, label necessarily. We're not ashamed of that. We're just preaching a particular passage of Scripture that doesn't necessarily use that word, but the concept, concept's buried in it. All right, third, uh, he wants our joy. God does. He wants our joy, freedom, and security in his salvation. I want to read a quote here from uh, two women who uh, entered into, and I have this full article I can send on to you if you want. It's a great article. One of, my, one of my favorites, just kind of pastorally and practically on the matter I've ever read. I read it a long time ago. Still consult it sometimes. A couple of gals who entered into a, a, a Christian academic experience, a seminary experience, not believing in predestination that God chooses, but that we have a will, a free will that God allows to exist to completely choose him on our own accord, and that he has not, he's, he's hands off with our choice of him. But they converted uh, to the other side uh, during, sometime during seminary, and they wrote this article in light of that on a positive manner, saying our lives changed so much for the better when we became predestinarians uh, than we were beforehand. And this is part of what they say here, is our intellectual adjustment to predestination has completely transfigured everything in our lives. We can't get through communion without crying. We have been reconciled to people we held grudges against. We are more willing to laugh at our foibles and we admit our, our, to our sins more easily. We have rediscovered the treasure of private confession and absolution among Christians. Even in the midst of our sorrows and screw-ups, we are not going to get thrown out of the ark. We have discovered our paradoxically bound freedom and for us as creatures, it is the only real freedom. What I like about this, and there are a number of things, is I think that believing that God chose us, appointed us, is moving, it's freeing, says a lot about God, uh, but it also actually, it enables us to start to do the things the Bible wants us to. You know, the Bible wants us to confess sins to each other. When's the last time you just dumped to another Christian? You, you just poured out everything. You admitted everything that you've ever done wrong. It doesn't happen every day necessarily, right? Here's a better question. What keeps you from doing that? And one of the things that they're saying is, uh, we, what prevented us from admitting our screw-ups and our foibles is the idea that it's a little bit about us. It's a little bit about me finding God. It's a little bit about me choosing to respond to him rather than he, him choosing to find me. And when you start to really kind of embed yourself in that mindset and that worldview, it's really, again, slippery slope to works, right? It's really hard to admit your mistakes because you're worried about people not loving you. What about God rejecting you because of that? You're in an Old Testament mindset, Old Covenant mindset, not a New Covenant mindset. So confessing sins, reconciling with others, actually praying in private confession and absolution with other people, and, and, and they're saying is we, we have freedom in that, but it's paradoxically bound up with God predestining us in the first place. And for us as creatures, See, they're, they're what, I like that they call themselves creatures, too. They're saying it's not about me here. It's, it, we, we realized in seminary or whatever was the, the cause for this kind of shift for them ac academically and intellectually, we realized it's not about me. They kind of thought it was. For them, at least, it was partially kind of about them finding God. So they thought the biblical storyline was about 
and it led to performance. It led to wearing masks around other Christians. It led to not praying as much because they didn't have to depend on God for quite as much as people would leave in predestination, right? So it led to all these things the Bible is saying don't do, but when they believed in predestination, it started to actually make them laugh at themselves because they didn't have to worry about screwing up. God chose them. They can't get thrown out of the ark when the flood comes at the end of history. Like, they're, they're on the ark of Christ. They're not going to get thrown out. God has truly elected them unto, unto salvation. One of the, uh, just to kind of shift to more, some personal stuff here too, some of you guys know this about me, uh, just a couple of things for me. I, I didn't, when I became a Christian, I did not, you know, and I rarely find that people, you know, convert and all of a sudden have all this stuff nailed down, you know, something you kind of grow in a little bit later on or at least kind of get more, wherever you land on this, I'm not saying you have to land here in every sense of the word, but um, it's something we think about later on usually. It was true for me. I didn't even know what the word was and kind of came to shift a bit. But one of the reasons why I uphold this doctrine personally is I do not trust my own motives. I never have. Uh, I've said I have. I've kind of lived that way, but I, I've never trusted my own motives, uh, especially as a Christian. Uh, my heart, uh, J- Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. All things. The most deceitful thing in the universe is your heart. <laughs> awesome. Good news, right? And mine. So the advice that the world gives sometimes of follow your heart, worst advice you can follow. Worst advice you can give yourself or your kids. Never follow your heart. Follow God. It's, the most, it's lying to you constantly. It's like constant lie, 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 lie. Oh, I'm going to consider that. No. We need something outside of us that's true, that's contrary to our heart, to change it and to speak truth into it. So it might follow. And Christ is that, is that truth. And so but the problem I, I realized earlier in my life is with non-predestinarian theology is it's, it's kind of relying on my heart to choose God, right? At least partially. The whole idea is based on my heart willfully choosing Christ, but I don't trust it. And the Bible says it's the most, it's the biggest liar in the universe. I'm like, well, how can that, inconsistent. So my, so, and Jesus knows this as well. In John 2, Jesus says, and people are responding to his miracles early on in John, and it says, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Isn't that great? It's like, well, he knew that all these people are responding now, but they're going to yell to crucify him, crucify him later on. In other words, kind of a whisper here, right, of it's like they're responding, but Jesus is not giving himself over to their ability to respond. He has a better mission in mind. He's going to cause their hearts to believe. He's going he's gonna to woo them. He's going to enter into them and change their affections to have pure motives that actually respond, choose them first so that they can choose him back and reciprocate that choice. So one of my prayers then has, um, still is, I encourage you guys to pray this because it's a biblical prayer. I've been a Christian 20 years. As a pastor, I pray this almost every day, is I believe, but God help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief, which is presupposing here, right? Wrapped in this prayer is the idea that, that disbelief, unbelief, is a sin, right? Otherwise, why are we saying help me from it, right? And that's one of the problems I realized too, just testimonially here with non-predestinarian theology is that for many who hold that, at the core of that idea and theology is that disbelief is not sinful, 
but a neutral place that God allows us time to kind of figure out who he is and choose our way out of. But that's inconsistent with the whole of the scriptures saying rebelling against God, not choosing him, not acknowledging him, disbelieving in him is actually proactive sin that we can't choose our way out of. And so so a, a predestinarian or someone at least who acknowledges that it's sin is begging for God to work in their heart to believe. Make me believe because I can't. Cause me to believe because I can't. I kind of do, but every single day my heart leads me away from you. Please save me. Scoop me up. Just hold me. Place me on the ark. Shut the door and seal it because I'm going to be banging to get out every day of my life. Cause me. Bring me in. That's what's wrapped up in this prayer. But again, the problem with the other side that sees it not, the problem there is to say that it is sin. This is why that non-predestinarians have to say it's not sin, sometimes at least, is that logically if we say it is sin but also believe we have free will to choose our way out of that, is that we save ourselves from the sin of unbelief. We save ourselves from that sin, which no one's comfortable with, and rightly so, because that's heresy to say you save yourself from any sin, any sin, even if it's unbelief. So what, what happens is we, we redefine unbelief as neutral, not sinful, this, this other perspective does, it's neutral, but it's inconsistent with Mark 9.24. And the whole of the scripture is saying any thought, any passive action that does not acknowledge God is sinful. Anything that does not proceed from faith, Romans 14 says, is, is sin. So for me then, uh, predestination gave me tons, of, like, like these two gals that I read from earlier, tons of peace, tons of security, tons of stillness in my soul, uh, contentment just being a normal guy who could laugh at himself. And I so, so struggle with that to this day, and I always will. My last breath, I'll be wrestling with this, but I'll be at peace knowing, well, God has chosen me. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. All I've got. And freedom from fear, because his perfect love in the gospel that goes back before time has driven out the fear that I could lose him, or that my, that my relationship with him is built on something besides, besides him. Fourth thing, just quickly here, uh, and final, it's an extension. Why does God predestine? It's an extension of his own God-centeredness. Same two uh, gals I read from earlier say, the point is God. Salvation's not an end in and of itself. So the point is, so when Christ dies on the cross for our sins, he's not just dying for our sins, he's dying for the sin, the, the, the hellish doctrine or philosophy that human beings are self-sufficient. That's what, that wasn't always in the world, by the way. That's what came into the world when Adam and Eve sinned, this idea that, well, God said this, but Satan says, you don't really need God. Okay, I'm buying into that. What really happened there was not just, oh, it's, they ate the fruit, it was God is not needed. He's not the center of my universe anymore. But see, what, what this doctrine does, kind of as the meat in the sandwich of the gospel, kind of just taking a bite of that whole thing, is it gets us back to not just sin absolution, not just this sin of, um, or abrogation, not just the sin removal, but it gets us back to a place of looking at the cross and saying, he's everything. He really is. He wanted to get back to putting him at the center of the universe. And if you don't, if the danger is, if we don't see God as choosing us, he's not quite at the center. Kind of is, maybe even partially, maybe even substantially kind of is, but he isn't totally. He isn't totally. You and your choice, 
your ability, your self-sufficiency, at least a sliver of it, is still in mine, would still be at the center of that if we uh, sought to deny what the scriptures are, are more clearly teaching here. This is what God is at work reclaiming. Dying for our sins, but he's also bringing us back to the cross and it really is all about him. He's done it all. The point is God, getting back to him, not just salvation. Salvation's a means to that end. It's not the end in and of itself. And so if you make it all about, we need to preserve free will and defend God in all of this, that kind of becomes the center of our theology more. Because salvation, that's the crux of the matter. That's what a lot of people at the other side would sometimes argue. A lot of voices out there that would argue for that. That's not the case. Uh, God-centeredness is rather the ultimate end, salvation just being a means to that. So, in conclusion then, uh, remember, this is why God wants you to know this. The Bible doesn't just say this exists. It says it's important that the church knows this. So we're happier, we're more free, we confess sins more readily, we give God more glory because he did more than we formerly thought. We're more at peace, we can't get thrown out of the ark, we know that we can never lose our salvation because of what he gives and ensures from before time began, what can, it can never be lost. It's not just a big theological concept. And so if you're thinking even right now, when I say predestination, if the first thought that comes to your mind is dusty old big thick theology book you know, <laughs> blown off the dust. That's not what God wants. He wants you to instantly think of deep love. Love. That's the whole point of predestination. Love, love, love. I mean, a woman doesn't feel loved when a guy sits back and says, well, I, I wanted to give you the room and the space to feel free to find me and choose me. So I'm going to be hiding somewhere in the upper Midwest. And when you find me, you have two weeks, by the way, not a day more, when you find me, we'll get married. And I really want you to find me. I hope you do, but I want you to be able to choose me. I'll be hiding somewhere. Just go. I mean, no, that's stupid, you know? No, no woman feels loved by that, right? A husband, for that matter. That would not be a loving thing. Rather, a, a wife feels, feels loved when she's pursued and chosen. I picked you. I picked Aletha. Of all the women in the world, I picked her. I chose her. I pursued her. I stuck my neck out. And, and all the husbands in the room, I hope you've done it. If you're, if you're a single guy, do that for a woman. It'll be the be one of the best things you've ever done is to be a pursuer. Don't be lazy. Don't sit back. Stick your neck out. Take a risk. And in that, you'll embody Christ. You'll embody predestination. You'll embody the choice. You'll embody actual love for your, for your wife. You'll and, and she will be able to embody the church's response by just basking in that choice that a husband makes for, for a wife. This is common sense. So if this is the case on a marriage human illustration, why would we make God out to be a deadbeat, lazy, non-choosy, non-loving husband? Why are we so prone to that? Well, it's because we're uninformed. We're sinful. We just don't know. And if that's you today, that's okay. All of us just didn't know until we read God's self-disclosure in the scriptures and what these things really are about. We just don't know. And so part of what he wants for us is to not just know the concept, but that he wants us to know the concept. He wants us to know that's the nature of how he found us. He, he wants your salvation that much. Did you know that? He wants you to be saved. He really does. We say it every week, but you just can't mean that as much if, you, if we don't believe in predestination in the way that we've talked about today. We, we can't mean it with the same type of robustness to it. He really does love you guys. 
He's pursued you. He's chased you down. So the, the, the call here is just simply believe, rejoice, and be free of yourself. It is, this is what predestination says, it is not about you. It's not just terribly good news. Awesome news, terrible news, right? But it's good news. Be free of yourself. It's not about, Christianity screams, because you're going to hear the contrary message in your heart and in the world till the day you die. And the gospel says, no, God has broken the silence. He's entered into all that hellish, human-centered, I-can-do-it philosophies of our country and our heart, our world. And he said, I've done everything. I've become like you to die a bloody death as one of you in your place. And, and I've wooed you. I've chosen you that you might chose me, choose me. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. With that, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, your grace in, in the gospel. Today, uh, through the lens of this uh, difficult-to-understand doctrine, uh, a um, mysterious one, uh, to be sure, one that um, comes with a lot of baggage for a lot of us, and uh, one that's just uh, full of paradox, uh, full of, uh, again, mystery. God, I pray that you would blow the haze away from our minds, that you would blow the haze away from our hearts through Christ, and help us to kneel before you, uh, to pray more, to depend on you more, and to be thankful more because of how much more you've done for us than maybe we first or formerly thought when we walked in here this morning. Thank you that you chose us. Thank you that you found us dead, called into our tombs, and made us alive together with Christ. And thank you that you want to encourage the church, humble the church. It's a humbling thing, too. It's not always wrong to feel offended at that. It means we're actually human. And we're, we're born into this self-sufficiency thing. And to have someone say, you can't do it, it's hard to hear. But it's, what, it's what, partly what got you crucified, Christ, was saying that over and over again and people being offended. It's going to be a, a burn. It's going to be a tough burn there, but a good burn uh, for us to be free of ourselves, uh, set free of that, and more, more inclined to look to you and just thank you for revealing yourself to us in the ways, ways that you have. So uh, help us to respond in song and to leave here. Um, ultimately, not just learn, that's kind of secondary, but um, more thankful more thankful and uh, less free of our or less clinging to ourselves more clinging to you